Welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I get curious and then look up the answers to my own questions, and then I tell you all about it, sometimes in excruciating detail. Sometimes. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. Um, Is this one of those times? This might be. It depends if you find it interesting, I guess, but it, it'll, it will be long. So it's, it's a long one. So if you find it interesting, then it's the right amount of details, what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, it's not that I put too many details in. It's that I put too many ship disasters in. <laughs> right. Too many topics. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, okay. Specifically, specifically Canadian ship disasters. And what this means is, um, up to my own definitions, of any ship that was either Canadian in origin or sank in Canada, anything like that. Sure. Yeah. Um and it's a tough category, I would say, to fit, mostly because we haven't been Canada for very long. So is this also a case of the area known as current-day Canada? And ships belonging to British Canada. Yeah. Sure. Okay. It is. It is. So um, just, you know, whatever. Loose. It's interesting. Just enjoy it. Don't worry too much about my categorization of Canadian ship disasters. Don't fight me about it. It's a loose filter meant to, you know, guide what you talk about, but... Yeah. Not be stringent? Got yeah. it. Well, how about you teach us something then? Well, fair enough. But I just wanted to warn everyone okay. before we started that we're not going to talk about Titanic today, if you were hoping to hear about Titanic. Is it related um, to Canada anyway? I mean, it sank less than 600 kilometers off the coast of Newfoundland. Okay. Um, but it, that's in international waters, technically. And yeah. also, like, I feel, I feel as if... Anyone that wants to know about Titanic already knows about Titanic or, you know. Has watched a movie about it or something. There's probably a million ways you could learn about it. So, you know, go ahead. Do okay. that. Um, and um, let's just start by defining all those ship name abbreviations. Yes, that'd be great, actually. Because that's what I was uh, having to look up when I was doing my research. Um, so the prefixes I'll reference, or maybe I don't. I don't remember which ones I cut out. These are the ones I might reference in this episode, uh, which is SS for steamship. Oh, steamship. Yes. RMS totally makes sense. for Royal Mail Service, Royal Mail Ship. Okay. Uh, HMS for His or Her Majesty's Ship, and the HCMS, His or Her Majesty's Canadian Ship. Oh. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Um, and as far as how I chose which shipwrecks to include and exclude... Um, it was what you wanna. I I I want to be clear that there are like hundreds, of and there are interesting ones I had to delete off this episode. So you know, look look some up. But uh, I went with sensationalism. Sure. As my main. As any good tabloid writer. Yeah, exactly. So we're gonna hear about most of the high casualty. Sure. Yeah, uh, somewhat unique events. Yeah, um, and I would like to start with uh, with a bang. Here. Oh boy. The worst uh peacetime maritime disaster in Canadian history. Excellent. Ship related wise. I didn't check oh. if it was <laughs> Right, there may have been land based disasters I, that I think so, but I think I might I can't remember if I looked that up or not. Okay. If I just forgot to put the word, you know, marine and maritime in or Oh no, I just wrote maritime disaster. There you go. Worst okay. peacetime maritime disaster. And before anyone gets mad at me, 
and starts yelling at their podcast uh, playing device. Um, yes, that Halifax explosion, which we will talk about today, was obviously worse. Um, and yes, it wasn't technically part of the war, but it is not classified as a peacetime maritime disaster. Because it wasn't peacetime. Because it happened during World War One and involved munitions that were heading for the Western Front. Yeah, okay. So even though it wasn't part of the war effort, it doesn't count as peacetime. I didn't make that definition up. Okay. okay. So the heart of this disaster is a ship called RMS Empress of Ireland. So Royal Mail ship. Yes. Okay. Um, so Fairfield Shipbuilding and Engineering built Empress of Ireland at Govan on the Clyde, which is in Glasgow, Scotland. Okay. And it was commissioned in 1904 by the CPR, which if you don't know what that is, it's Canadian Pacific Railway mm-hmm. um, Company. Yeah. And so they commissioned it to run the North Atlantic route between Liverpool and Quebec City. Um, it was an RMS because it was a ship contracted by Royal Mail, Mail to deliver mail across the Atlantic with people. Okay. Um, so Empress of Ireland had a capacity of around 1,500 passengers. So it was pretty big. Uh, 170 meters long, that's 570 feet, 20 meters wide, and 14 and a half hundred, 14 and a half thousand tons, that makes more sense. Mm, Yes. Um, And I didn't get confused about tons all the time, so there was like, the the site was like long tons, imperial tons, metric tons, I don't know, tons. This one didn't didn't specify, which confuses me. Um, Anyways, so she set sail on her maiden voyage the 29th of June, 1906. Um, and she made it to Quebec on the 6th of July and back to Liverpool on the 12th. Uh, first, I'm going to call a timeout. It feels weird to keep saying she, but that's apparently what you're supposed to do when you talk about a ship. It is always a she. Always. And okay. you're supposed to refer to it like that. And it just feels weird to me. So I might slip up and not call them she's. How dare you? Sometimes I feel like it sounds more natural when I'm talking about inanimate objects, but... Um, anyways, over the next eight years, Empress of Ireland completes the same back and forth sailing. Um, they alternated the Canadian port depending on the season. So it went to Quebec City between May and October. And then when the river was frozen over, starting yeah. in November, it would start to go to Halifax or St. John. Makes sense. New Brunswick. That would make sense in terms of this being about Halifax. So. Oh, this isn't Excellent. about Halifax. Oh, I thought you said that this was the biggest... Oh, I just was confused because I was thinking how Besides Halifax Explosion, because yeah. that's not peacetime. I thought right. I was being very clear about this. Yeah, but you said the word Halifax and I got excited. So you can keep going. I saved that to the end. Wow. So that everyone would have to listen. Okay. okay. Got it. <laughs> or fast forward. That, that, that's that a works thing too, yeah. in modern technology. Um, so after the sinking of the Titanic in 1912, as you can imagine, ship safety. Oh, I just talked about the Titanic. I think it's going to cough like three more times. Okay. Uh-oh. I lied. Anyways, ship safety was really put under the microscope, let's say. Okay. Um, when Empress of Ireland first entered service in 1906, she had been equipped with standard wooden lifeboats. And in 1912, they replaced those with 16 steel lifeboats. Um, and then under those were stored another 26 wooden collapsible lifeboats. So that means they had a combined lifeboat capacity of 1,686 people. In order to fit the total, That's, instead of 1,400 was, could be on there, right? right? So the capacity okay. of lifeboats is like 280 more than passengers. So we're okay. good. We're good. Yeah. Um, Empress of Ireland had just begun her 96th voyage when she was lost. So her final successful crossing ended when she arrived at Quebec City from Liverpool the 22nd of May, 1914. 
Um, at this time, total, she transported 119,262 passengers west to Canada and 67,838 east to Britain. Okay. Um, so pretty good career. So Empress of Ireland departs Quebec City for Liverpool, 4.30 p.m. Uh, on the 28th of May. And the crew is 420 people, passengers 1,057. So she's about two-thirds full. Mm-hmm. Henry George Kendall was the captain. He had been promoted just at the beginning of the month. It was his first trip down the St. Lawrence in command of the ship. Obviously, he'd done it before. Okay. Um, so early on the 29th of May, Empress of Ireland was just past Ramuski. Um, and the crew saw masthead lights of what turned out to be the SS Storstad, a Norwegian coal ship. So if you can imagine, Empress of Ireland is heading northeast. Storstad is traveling, you know, the opposite way towards them, heading southwest. Yeah. So um, they could see each other. And they were like 11 or 12 kilometers apart. And all of a sudden, fog started to roll in and they couldn't see anything anymore. Um, so they started using their fog whistles over and over sure. to try to signal to each other where they were. Um, but at 1.56 a.m. local time, Storstead crashed into Empress of Ireland's starboard side, like around midship. Okay. Right in the middle. Uh, Storstead remained afloat. Empress of Ireland was severely damaged. So there's a gaping hole in the side. The lower deck started to flood, you know, alarmingly fast. Um, Captain Kendall was shouting to the crew of the Storstead, with, um, like, he had the megaphone on. He was saying, keep your engines on. Press into it. Like, like don't disengage from us or else you'll open up the hole kind of thing. Like, yeah. um, so keep the hole plugged, basically. Um, but Empress of Ireland had kind of been pushed away, pushed forward. And so the current of the St. Lawrence shoves the store out away after about five seconds. And there was no time to shut the watertight doors. The ship is going to kind of lurch heavily starboard. And then yeah. water started pouring in at 270,000 liters per second. That's a good amount. Yeah, pretty fast. Um, it was most devastating because everyone was asleep, right? It's 1.56 a.m. So they're, most of them, especially the lower classes, are under deck, right? Sleeping yeah. under deck. Um, they drowned quite quickly, <laughs> right away. Um, people that were berthed in the upper decks, so, you know, the rich ones, they were woke up, woken up by the collision. They got on lifeboats. But it was leaning, the boat itself was leaning so much, they couldn't launch the lifeboats off the port side. Okay. Uh, some passengers tried anyways, but the lifeboats crashed into the side of the ship and all the passengers were uh, spilt into the St. Lawrence there, which I kind of went to look at average temperatures at that time of year. Mm. And it's about, probably about three degrees Celsius at the time. Yeah, it's a little... Thirty-eight degrees Fahrenheit. Um, so five starboard life so lifeboats were launched successfully. Um, one of the starboard ones also capsized, though. Um, so that's about it. Five five lifeboats. The lights and power, you know, failed five or six minutes after the collision. So now it's dark and it's very foggy. And then ten minutes after the collision, the ship flips very suddenly onto the starboard side. Um, so that did let some people get out from underneath. But a minute or two later, it already sank. Yeah. Like it, like, it sank so quickly from start to finish 14 minutes. Wow, that's fast. Yes. And she was equipped with watertight compartments. But the fatal flaw in her design was that unlike the Titanic, so you're referencing it again, <laughs> where the watertight doors could be closed by a switch on the bridge, for the Empress of Ireland, the doors needed to be closed manually. Ooh, yeah. So of the 1,477 people on board, 
1,012 died. Okay. Even though there was a ship right beside them that could rescue people instantly. Is that it was just so quick, yeah. Yeah. Um, so whose fault was this? Here's the question. The Commission of Inquiry is held in Quebec in June, and it lasted for 11 days. Um, fun fact. Presiding over these proceedings was one Lord Mercy, who had previously presided over the official inquiry into the Titanic sinking. Oh. Apparently, I'm just going to keep saying Titanic all podcasts. So Apparently. if you were hoping to not learn anything about the Titanic, I tricked you. Yeah, spoilers. Um, the following year, he then led the inquiry into the sinking of Lusitania. Uh, that one sounds familiar, too. You you know it. Okay. <laughs> um, so not surprisingly, both captains blamed each other. Oh, that's really surprising, um, yeah. I was, as was noted in the inquiry, quote, If the testimony of both captains were to be believed, the collision happened as both vessels were stationary with their engines stopped. Impressive. So in the end, the commissioner stated, the question of who to blame was a simple issue. Which of the two ships had changed their course during the fog? They, quote, could come to no other conclusion than that it was Storstad that changed her course to starboard. Um, The captain of the Starstad, of course, said Lord Mercy was a fool for holding him responsible. It wasn't his fault. Um, The CPR then won a court case against the owners of the Storstad for the value of the silver bullion, which sank... With the ship. So that was about $2 million in today's money, Canadian. Okay. Um, so if the store said was seized and sold at auction for a little bit of that money, you know. Yeah, of course. Um, so ultimately, they found the rapid sinking and high death toll. So not the collision, but the sinking and death toll were attributed to three things. The location in which the store said had hit them. The failure to close the Empress of Ireland's watertight doors. And I'm going to quote here because I don't know ship speak very well. Quote, longitudinal bulkheads that exacerbated the list by inhibiting cross-flooding. It's a bad design, okay. apparently. And yeah. um, this crash would mean they would stop using that design. So that's something. I guess so. Um, a contributing factor was also open portholes. Surviving passengers and crew testified some of the upper portholes were left open for ventilation, which is a big no-no, um, according to the International Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea. Really? They have to be closed before and locked before leaving port. Um, but don't make up your mind yet about whose fault this is. Oh, boy. Because I told you nothing. (laughs) Nothing that would lead you to make a conclusion. Um, in 2005, a television film called The Last Voyage of the Empress actually investigated this whole thing. Like, they referenced the history. They did model reenactments, underwater investigation, computer simulations. They did all this stuff, okay? Um, and the program's opinion was that the cause of the incident appeared to be, obviously, the fog, but exacerbated by the actions of Captain Kendall. Not the store set. Really? So they decided that both captains failed in the first rule of encountering fog, which is that ships should maintain their heading. Okay. You yeah. shouldn't be turning. Um, they concluded RMS Empress of Ireland was trying to maintain the company's advertised speed of Atlantic crossing and the captain's insistence on keeping to her original like time-saving heading is what resulted in the collision. Okay. They um, concluded the captain of the store side deviated as well, but only after seeing Ambrose of Ireland deviate first. Okay. Anyways, I'd say go give the program a watch because I didn't have time to watch it yet. And maybe you can come up with, you know, with your own conclusion. Maybe. Okay. Um, well, the wreck, though, I want to talk about the wreck for a second. It's located 8.3 kilometers offshore. About 45 meters deep, so 147 feet. There's lots of silver there. (laughs) 
Well, I don't know, actually, you would think, but its depth makes it accessible to advanced divers is the thing. Okay. But it's dangerous. There's already been at least nine people that have been killed trying to explore the wreck. Um, many artifacts have been retrieved, so I imagine some of the silver, yeah. Uh, some of them are displayed in the Empress of Ireland Pavilion at the Site Historique Maritime de la pont au pere I can't say French words, in Ramouski, Quebec, and also at the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21 in Halifax. Um, in 1999, Quebec declared it a site of historical and archaeological importance. So they allowed, that allowed the government to actually pass some protections. Uh, and then the wreck of the RMS Empress of Ireland was designated a national historic site in Canada in 2009. So yeah, if you go to Ramouski, you can see that stuff. Yeah, cool. Um, okay. As for other terrible passenger ship disasters, uh, the SS Atlantic was a transatlantic ocean liner which was operated by White Star Line. I don't know if you've heard of them. That ship uh, ran between Liverpool and New York City. So during SS Atlantic's 19th voyage on the 1st of April, 1873, she struck a rock and sank off the coast of Nova Scotia. 535 people died. So it was the deadliest civilian maritime disaster in the North Atlantic Ocean until the sinking of SS Le Bourguignon. Bourguignon? How do you say that word? Uh, nope. Bourguignon. Bourguignon. French thing. On 2nd July, 1898. Um, and SS Atlantic was the greatest disaster the White Star Line ever had until... Titanic? Correct. Yeah. In 1912. Um, so, speaking of the French named ship I can't say, SS Le Bourguignon. She was a French ocean liner, obviously. Uh, on the 4th of July, 1898, shortly before 5 in the morning, she collides with the British sailing ship Crote Marshire. What a name. Cro Martyshire? I don't know. Wow. The name is something. Okay. Um, about 110 kilometers south of Nova Scotia. Again, fog. Fog did it. Uh, the French ship was espe- apparently traveling, though, full speed, despite the visibility being only about 18 meters. Seems like a good choice. I don't think so. Um, so yeah, those ones were bad. 549 people died in that one. Um, at the time that it happened, the sinking was infamous because only 13% of the passengers survived and 48% of the crew did. I mean, I think Mm. that's probably because they were asleep. Again, just before five in the morning, the crew is starting to wake up and the passengers aren't. Well, and they have jobs and they're doing stuff and know the boat and... Yeah. Yeah. Um, SS Princess Sophia was another passenger ship that... Um, think that, you know, it would be good to look at, but I didn't have time to talk about. Sure. Yeah. So let's go on to Franklin's Lost Expedition. Yeah. Which was an Arctic exploration voyage that was looking for the Northwest Passage. Um, so if you don't know that what that is, I think I should introduce that a little bit. Uh, so for centuries, European explorers, starting, of course, with Christopher Columbus in 1492, Trying to find a way to get ships through the Americas. Let's get through the Atlantic to the Pacific and be able to find a trade route to Asia. Because, you know, they keep being blocked by the Americas. So, or or the ice, or, you know, rough waters in some of the other straits or whatever. So this expedition was led, of course, by Captain Sir John Franklin. Mm -hmm. Um, Franklin's expedition left England in 1845 with two ships, HMS Erebus and HMS Terror. Um, by this point, the Arctic Ocean, through which, you know, navigating through the Canadian Arctic archipelago, 
was the best option they thought for for the you know getting through the Americas. This is the Northwest Passage, and this is our navigable yeah. ship route to trade with Asia. So they were really pushing exploring up there. Um, so Franklin's assignment was to traverse the last little unnavigated section of the Northwest Passage um, and record magnetic data to hopefully aid navigation in the future. Um, so then, you know, disaster struck. Um, both of the ships and their crews, obviously, were icebound in yep. Victoria Strait, which is near King William Island. That's in Nunavut. Well, present day Nunavut. Mm-hmm. Um, 129 people were, well, men, were stranded on the ice. Yep. And they lived there for more than a year on their ships. Yeah. Um, and then they finally decided to abandon them in April of 1848, which, I mean, Captain Franklin and nearly two dozen others had already died at this point. Um, so the survivors were being led by Franklin's second in command, uh, and the captain of the Arebus, James Fitzjames. It's a good name. Right? I had to say it. So they set out for the Canadian mainland and disappeared. Yeah. So it's assumed they all died. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good in assumption. Many, in many subsequent searches, like in the decades afterwards, um, they found artifacts from the expedition. They found the remains of a few of the men. Uh, scientific studies in modern times suggested that people didn't die off all that quickly. Like, they died of hypothermia, starvation, lead poisoning or zinc deficiency, scurvy and other diseases, general exposure as a uh, cause of death malnutrition so yeah they had a lot of causes of death it wasn't just like they all froze to death it was no. a long suffering experience they survived for longer than was probably uh nice cut marks on some of the bones uh recovered during these studies support allegations of cannibalism mm-hmm. i mean of course um in 2014 a canadian search team led by parks canada located the wreck of the Erebus in the eastern portion of queen Maud gulf so it took until 2014 to discover HMS Erebus. That part's crazy. In 2016, the Arctic Research Foundation found the wreck of HMS Terror. 2016. That was not very long ago. Um, they found it south of King William Island in a body of water named Terror Bay. And, like, before you look it up, like I did, they didn't name it that in 2016 after they found the Terror there. They approved that name, the Canadian government, in 1910. Yeah. So, I don't know. They're like, well... We think they went missing around here. Let's just name a bunch. There's a bunch of things up there named Terror or something, but I just think that's funny. Um, the wreck sites combined are now protected as a combined national historic site. If you ever go that go far to the for Arctic, some reason, yeah, none of it. Um, let's talk about Canada's worst ever pleasure ship disaster, mm. which is the category I'm putting this one in, even though this ship was like kind of a ferry. So. Half-moving vehicles, half-pleasure craft? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is the Victoria Steamboat Disaster, or the Victoria Day Disaster, also called that. Okay. Um, It occurred in London, Ontario, on the 24th of May, 1881. Victoria Day, 1881. Yeah. If you aren't Canadian, uh, that's the holiday commemorating Queen Victoria's birthday, Queen Victoria of England. That might have been obvious. I don't know. Maybe not. So, to set the scene, we're in London, Ontario. There is the Thames River, because of course there is. Um, (laughs) There's not a lot of original place naming going on over there. Um, So, small passenger boats start to do trips between downtown London and a little village called Byron. Okay. Just like about 10 kilometers downriver. 
Um, and eventually bigger companies get into the market. So the London and Waterworks line was one and the Thames Navigation Company was the other one. So they put bigger ships on the, on the river to do these trips. Makes sense. Um, so in July 1878, the Forest City was launched and it was one of the first vessels to operate um, under the Thames Navigation Company. Now, in November 1879, the London and Waterworks Line ferry um, called Enterprise caught fire and sank in the winter. Mm, no good. Um, <laughs> slipped under the ice and stayed there until next spring when they repaired the hull and, you know, expanded the ship and reused it for the newest sternwheel steamship the company had, which was the Victoria. Okay. So, one thing about this time period is it was known that the vessels operating the London to Byron route often had a kind of slapdash construction and they lacked some safety considerations. Sure. Um, <laughs> the way they're built just to accommodate the, the river being varying depths made them inherently uh, tipsy. Oh. Yeah. Because they had so, to be like, they had to float higher up. Like they couldn't. They had to have flat bottom shallow hulls. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, and out of all of the steamboats that operated on the Thames at the time, uh, it was well known that the worst built was the Victoria. Oh, okay. Great. Yes. So, just as like uh, illustrate what it was like on the Thames at this time, on Victoria Day 1880, so a year before she sank, Victoria carried a total of 1,605 passengers that day and collided with the Forest City twice. In one day, oh, due to the captains of both ships having a really fierce rivalry over who'd get to dock first. So they just smash into each other when they... That's great. Yeah. Um, okay, let's cut to May 24th, 1881. Okay. Londoners are eager to celebrate the Queen's birthday and gather en masse, as Londoners did, at Waterworks Park. That seems like the right place. It was just a, you know, big popular park. And it was also one of the places to get on. The ferry. Okay. Uh, 9 a.m. local time, the Victoria departs from London on her first trip. She makes that trip, the round trip from London to Byron to back three times that day. And then in the afternoon, the Forest City gets stuck on a sandbar. Hmm. Princess Louise was dispatched to tug, try to tug her free. Yep. Which left Victoria responsible for, you know, the bulk of the passengers. It's Forest City and Princess Louise were out of, you know, commission yeah. at the moment. She became overcrowded almost immediately. Um, passengers didn't seem worried at all about how low the vessel was sitting in the water. Um, many joked the river was too shallow for anything dangerous to happen. Uh, apparently, there are a lot of jokes told about a time when the Victoria had been grounded while attempting to sail over a tin can lying on the riverbed. Hmm. Um, so they, they know that this is actually a problem. Yeah. They're willing to joke they about it. They thought it was silly. Yeah, okay. You know, it's so shallow, I can, she can beat herself on a tin can. I'm sure we won't be in any harm's way, you know. Um, on the last voyage of the evening, the Victoria loaded her passengers at the Byron dock, and the docks were packed at this point because people were just like, it's the end of a long, you know, yeah. day, long weekend, and people would rather pay the 15 cents to get on the boat ride than get home another way. Yeah. Um, so one of the problems here is that no one was counting or really controlling for the number of people on board. Seems like a recipe um, for disaster, the way you're putting it. Estimates are that she had over 600 people on board for this sailing, which is about 100 over her capacity. Okay. Um, as soon as she left the dock, she started taking in small amounts of water immediately, which washed over the lower deck. 
at some point, people did start to get nervous at this point uh, and kind of dove into the river and just swam to shore. Hmm. Uh, the Princess Louise finally had turned around to pick up more passengers in Byron and passed Victoria on the river. And when that happened, the Victoria's passengers all rushed to that side of the deck to wave to those aboard. Um, so the Victoria kind of lurched in one direction, almost capsized. The captain freaks out and notices a sandbar up ahead. So he steers the ship to the sandbar to try to beach the ship to save it from capsizing, basically. Okay. Um, but before he could, all the passengers ran to the other side of the deck to watch two like rowboats that were racing each other go by. Um, so the ship lurches to starboard. Then the passengers all run to port side to try to right the ship. And the ship, you know, shockingly doesn't survive. The steam boiler tears loose from the mountains, tumbles over and kills passengers with the scalding hot water on the way down, by the way. Mm. Uh, knocks out the port beams, knocks out the railings on the port side, and sent the entire upper deck and the canopy cover collapsing onto the lower deck, which, you know, crushed and killed more passengers. Um, people started falling in the muddy riverbed and were killed as the ship keeled over onto the port side. Yeah. Um, now that they didn't have the weight of the passengers anymore, the ship righted itself and sank. Yeah. Um, the upper promenade deck kind of floated and covered passengers underneath it, so they drowned. Um, it's estimated between 182 and 198 people died in this disaster, um, even though the river was only three and a half meters deep. 12 feet. Yeah. Which shows you that water of any kind can be... No, absolutely. Especially when it's boiling water coming out of a boiler. Um... One thing I, I think it's important to know, which was, I think, common for shipwrecks of this era, is that a higher proportion of women and children died than adult men because, one, the layered ridiculousness of women's clothing. You, mm -hmm. try, to, you try to swim in, like, 12 layers of garments. Um, and, two, they didn't teach anyone to swim. So kids definitely didn't know how to swim. You know, they were helpless in the water. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to also include one more pleasure ship. Okay. Even though it makes the podcast run long. Sure, go I for like, it. I liked this story. Well, like is a weird word to say. This is an interesting one. The SS Neuronic. So SS Neuronic was built for passenger and freight service on the Great Lakes. Um, she could hold 600 passengers and 200 crew. At the time she was launched in 1913, she was one of Canada's largest, most beautiful passenger ships. So they nicknamed her the Queen of the Lakes. Um... We're talking about 1949. On September 14th, 1949, Neuronic embarks on a seven-day pleasure cruise of Lake Ontario. Okay. She leaves Detroit and picks up more passengers in Cleveland. Then she was scheduled to travel to Prescott, Ontario and the Thousand Islands and then return to Sarnia. Sure. Yeah. Neuronic was carrying 524 passengers and 171 crew members. The captain was Captain William Taylor. Um, so she docks for the night at Pier 9 in Toronto Harbor at 7 p.m. 16th of September. At 2.30 a.m., a passenger notices smoke. Follows the smell to a small room off the port corridor. Finding the smoke is coming from a locked linen closet, he gets a bellboy. Yeah. Notifies the bellboy there's a fire. The bellboy doesn't tell anyone there's a fire or sound the fire alarm. He goes and finds the key and opens the closet. Hmm. And then fire, you know, exploded into the hallway. Uh, yeah. And then it really, really starts to spread, which is, it's fueled by the fact that they polished the walls with, you know, 
the wood paneling with, with oil. Yeah. Um, so a few crew members and passengers attempt to fight the blaze with fire extinguishers, but only to find the fire extinguishers all were out of order. Hmm. Good. Um, finally, the captain was notified of the situation. Uh, the first mate sounds the alarm. And by this point, it's 2.38 a.m., only eight minutes after the fire began. Um, already half of the ship's decks were on fire. The first fire truck arrived at the pier 2.41 a.m. The entire ship was in flames by 2.41 a.m., 11 minutes after they noticed the smoke. Um, only 15 crew members had been on the ship when the fire broke out. Oh. Yeah. They failed to make a sweep of the upper four decks to wake up passengers. So anyone who did wake up was just awakened by other screaming passengers. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the ship's stairwells were on fire. So passengers weren't able to reach the E deck, which is where you needed to go to escape with the gangplank. Um, so some climbed down ropes onto the pier. After about 20 minutes, the you know metal hull is white hot. The decks buckle and collapse. Um, the firefighters sprayed more than 6.4 million liters of water on the ship. And they still weren't able to extinguish it until 5 a.m. Wow. So the death toll was never precisely determined here because of how crazy hot the fire was, basically. So, and who went into the water and stuff. But many skeletons were so incinerated that they had to use forensic dentistry to identify remains. And this is reportedly the first time that they did that. Really? Um, I don't know if that's like in a mass casualty incident or the first time ever, but that's what it says. Um, so the estimates range from somewhere between 118 and 139 deaths. And the controversy comes in is that all but one of those were passengers. Oh, um, okay. So most died from suffocation or burns. Some died from being trampled or from leaping off the upper decks. Only one person drowned. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so the high death toll was blamed on the ineptitude and cowardice of the crew. That's sure. What the I can see that. Commission found too few of the crew were on duty at the time. None of the crew attempted to wake the passengers. Those are the charges against them. Um, also, many crew members fled the ship at the first alarm. That's the cowardice part. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no member of the crew ever called the fire department. Passengers had not been informed of evacuation routes or evacuation procedures. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the design and construction of the ship was also found to be at fault. Um, the interiors were lined with oiled wood instead of, you know, fireproof material. Yeah. That's bad. Uh, exits were only on one deck instead of all five decks. That's also, also bad. bad. Yeah. Yeah. And none of the ship's fire extinguishers were in working order. Which, how? How do you even let all of them? Anyways, bad. Yeah. So, the media and such hailed Captain Taylor as a hero, though. Um, he broke windows, pulled trapped passengers from their rooms. He was, like, the last of the crew to leave the vessel. But the Canadian Department of Transport inquiry did blame him and the ship's company for failing to take adequate precaution against fire. Sure. Um, so like his brave at the certificate moment. was suspended for a year. Yeah. Yeah. And it maybe just stood out compared to how all the rest of the crew ran away or just mm-hmm. did everything wrong. Yeah. Terribly. Um, okay. Our next story is about SS Edmund Fitzgerald. Yeah. Okay. And Great. I just had to include this one merely, merely. Uh, merely is not the right word. Because of the excellent song by the late great Canadian singer-songwriter Gordon Lightfoot. Of course. Who, by the way, considered this song to be his finest work. Um, the good news? 
for the people involved is that this one has relatively few deaths compared to the other ones we've talked about. Uh, so the song talks about the final voyage of Eben Fitzgerald as it experienced a lot of trouble in a storm and then sank on Lake Superior. It's not, the song is not written to be 100% historically accurate. Ooh, that um, guy. Lightfoot used some artistic omissions and paraphrases and went with his storyteller instinct, he said. Um, he also wrote it before the wreck was found and the full details could be kind of oh, worked, really? worked out. It wasn't found until years later, so. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, I would suggest listening to the song by Gordon Lightfoot, of course. Um, he did make two changes to the lyrics when he was performing it live. He said he didn't want to ever change the original copyrighted lyrics, though. So one is that when there's a parishioner of the Mariner's Church of Detroit. In the song, Gordon Lightfoot calls it the Maritime Sailor's Cathedral. Anyways, he wrote to Gordon Lightfoot and complained that the church is not musty. <laughs> okay. Because that was a lie in the church. Mm, or mm-hmm. in, in the song. So from that time, he didn't sing in a musty old hall. When he performed live, he sang in a rustic old hall. Okay, fine. Okay. And then the second change, he only started doing it in 2010, when he changed the line because they had found a new finding that there was no crew error involved in the sinking. So originally he sang at 7 p.m. a main hatchway caved in. He said, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Anyways, the new lyric, when he sang it live, that is, he would sing at 7 p.m. It grew dark. It was then. He said, da-da-da-da-da-da. Anyways, so he just changed those two little things when performing live. Um, but enough about the song. Let's talk about the actual boat. Okay. Um, SS Edmund Fitzgerald was an American ship. Okay? It's, not, it's not Canadian, but Gordon Lightfoot was Canadian. Yeah, so it's okay. And it sank in Canada. Perfect. So SS Edmund Fitzgerald um, was a freighter that carried Taco Night. Ta- Taco Night? <laughs> Taco Night? Oh, not like Tuesdays or something. I know. I don't know how you say it. Is it taconite or taconite? Okay. I don't know. It's, it's a type of iron ore. Okay. 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 So it carried the ore from mines near Duluth, Minnesota to the ironworks in Detroit, Michigan, um, or like Toledo, Ohio, some other Great Lakes ports, ports as well. Um, it was the first laker built to the maximum St. Lawrence Seaway size, which was 225 meters long. That's long. 730 feet and 23 meters wide. 75 feet wide. Um, so she she leaves for the last time from Superior, Wisconsin, carrying a full cargo of ore in the afternoon of November 9th, 1975, heading for a steel mill near Detroit. And she encounters a winter storm on Lake Superior at 1 a.m. on the 10th. So they were reporting winds of 96 kilometers an hour, so 60 miles an hour, yep. and waves up to 11 meters high. 11 like meters. 35 feet. Whew, that is pretty tall. Yeah. Uh, the wind and snow picked up through the night. It kind of went up and down. And then shortly after 3.30 p.m., um, Captain McSorley of the Fitzgerald radioed to report they were taking on water. They had lost two vent covers. They'd lost a fence railing. And the vessel was starting to list. Hmm. Uh, so in a broadcast shortly after this, the United States Coast Guard warned all shipping that the Sioux locks had to be closed. They should seek safe anchorage somewhere. Obviously, Evan Fitzgerald was not going to be able to do that. Yeah. So at 4.10 p.m., McSorley radios again to say they've lost radar. The Coast Guard reports that several navigation aids like lighthouses weren't working any longer. 
Um, so yeah, it's a pretty, pretty bad storm. That's bleak. Yeah. Um, at about 7.10 p.m., they radioed to ask how McSorley was doing, and he said, we are holding our own. The ship was never heard from again. Yeah. No distress, distress signals were ever received. So, we, yeah, what happened is anyone's guess besides just the weather. Um, if you look this up, I didn't have time to include, there's like 20 million. What about this situation? Mm-hmm. Maybe it was this. And it probably makes sense if you knew things about boats. So, it sank in Canadian waters, just, uh, in Ontario. 160 meters deep, about 27 kilometers from Whitefish Bay. So that's right near Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan and Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. The entire crew, so 29 men, died. Um, and she is the largest ship to have sunk in the Great Lakes. Um, so the remains of the ship were located not, well, not too much longer. Five days after, but it wasn't until, like, it was a while until they were able to actually get down to the remains. They located they found her where in two it was. Pieces, exactly. Yeah. By a U.S. Navy aircraft that was detecting magnetic anomalies. Um, so that sinking led to changes in the way they did Great Lakes shipping, the regulations, the practices, um, mandatory equipment that needed to be used, that kind of thing. Um, so in 2006, the Ontario Heritage Act limited access to the ship's wreck and marked it as a gravesite for the victims. Okay. So until then, you could technically go there if you wanted. If you wanted some tacos. <laughs> the next disaster is, well, three ships. Oh, a trifecta. Yeah. Um, all involved in the expulsion of the Acadians. Okay. So the expulsion... Of the Acadians. That has a lot, 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 lot of background. Yeah, a lot of history to that um, one for sure. You could go back like a thousand years <laughs> and find things connected to. Um, so it deserves its own episode and that sucks that I can't. Anyways, I, I'll try to be really brief, my my greatest weakness, but I'm going to do it. Yeah, I was going to go ahead and try. So in 1605, Acadia, I'm not even going to do anything but before okay. it was founded. Acadia was founded. Um... It, this was France's first New France colony in, in Canada, right? Um, the creation of Acadia's capital happened in 1605, uh, called Port Royal. And so Acadia is in present day Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, and like the northern parts of present day Maine. All of that was Acadia. Yep, makes sense. Um, Acadia went back and forth between Britain and France over the next hundred or so years. And finally, it was given to Great Britain as part of the 1713 Peace of Utrecht, which is the treaty that ended the War of the Spanish Succession. Oh, yes. Okay. So this area, um, so it's full of both the Mi'kmaq indigenous people, other some other indigenous groups, and it was full of the New France Acadian yeah. colonists. And when Britain got it, they, of course, tried to make the Acadians sign an unconditional oath of loyalty to the British crown, which, not surprisingly, they didn't really want to do. Um, so they signed a conditional oath and went on and lived their lives. And all of a sudden, war breaks out. The Seven Years' War. All of a sudden. Is happening. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think anything was all of a sudden back no. between those. But <laughs> yeah. I, I said it was going to be brief. Stop it. Okay. <laughs> So after the war breaks out, 
They again try to make the Acadians sign the unconditional oath of loyalty or they're gone. So again, surprisingly, most of them don't do it. They were ordered to be deported. So men, women, children forcibly were removed from their homes, their lands, their houses were burned, and they gave the land to settlers loyal to the crown, crown, mostly immigrants from New England and Scotland. Yeah, okay. So the British started deporting Cajuns en masse in 1755. First, they sent them to the 13 colonies. Um, Then during the second wave of expulsion, they sent them to like Britain and France. Um, So this second wave began with the French defeat at the siege of Louisbourg in 1758. So thousands of Acadians were then deported from Ile Saint-Jean, which was what Prince Edward Island used to be called when it was French, and Ile Royale, which is Cape Breton Island. Um, And that's where our story lies. Okay. Um, On November 4th, 12 transport ships full of Acadians left the port for France. And one ship, the Mary, had already completed the crossing. 255 out of 560 of her passengers died of disease, mostly children. And that Mm. is a very common story in... Uh, deporting the Acadians. They didn't treat Care. them very well. No. Yeah. Um, so one ship out of the 12 wrecked in the Strait of Canso. Um, another one, Ruby, hit the rocks on Pico Island. That's the Azores. Is that how you say that? Azores? I don't know how you say mm. those islands. Anyways, she sank December 16th, 1758. So around 210 Acadians died on that boat. Um, the Duke William and Violet sank off of Land's End, an area called Land's End. The Violet sank December 12th. She had 310 Acadian civilians aboard and a crew of 26. And Duke William had over 360 Acadians on board and sank December 13th. So eight of the transports made it to France. Out of 12. That sounds like a quad vectra. It sounds like a bad job. So going back to the expulsion of the Acadians, in total of the 14,100 Acadians in the region, about... 11,500 were deported, and at least 5,000 of those died of disease, starvation, or shipwreck. Yeah, it's a pretty high number. It's almost, you know, You're almost like, like they should have them. just killed them instead of... Yeah. Uh, genocide has been thrown around. Yes. Um, a census in 1764 indicated about 2,600 Acadians had eluded capture and remained in the colony. Um, so since 2004, the Fédération des Associations de Famille Acadienne of New Brunswick, oh god, and the Société Saint Thomas d'Aquin of Prince Edward Island, um, has mandated December 13th as the Acadian Remembrance Day yearly, and they commemorate the sinking of the Duke William and just in general the deaths of the thousands of Acadians. Yeah. Um, and then they went to New Orleans, and you guys got Cajun food. Yeah. Anyways, that story—it's a—it's a quite interesting and tragic, terrible story. It is, yeah. Um, next, next, SS Caribou, hmm. um, a Newfoundland railway passenger ferry that ran between Port au Basque in the Dominion of Newfoundland and North Sydney in Nova Scotia. Um, so in the early 1900s, and on the 13th of October, 1942. SS Caribou is part of the Sydney Port Albasque Convoy, which was organized by the Royal Canadian Navy. Um, these convoys usually occurred about three times a week um, in cover of darkness. So HMCS Grand Mare, which was a Bangor class minesweeper, Bangor, Bangor, Bangor I think is right, class yeah. minesweeper, um, that was the naval escort. The German submarine U sixty nine. Hmm. was unfortunately also patrolling the Gulf of St. Lawrence at this time. 
Um, because it was a dark evening and because SS Caribou is, you know, a steamship, the coal fire, you know, they were silhouetted against the horizon and uh, easily torpedoed by the U-69. Got it. Um, so at 3.51 a.m. on the 14th October 1942, Caribou was torpedoed about 37 kilometers southwest of Port Albasque and sank five minutes later. Yeah. In no time. Um, so Grand Mare spotted the submarine and tried to ram it, but U-69 quickly submerged. Over the next two hours, Grand Mare launched six depth charges at U-69, but did manage to damage it and the submarine disappeared. Um Following proper procedure, might I add, Grand Mary then went back for survivors, even though in the days after the sinking, um, there was like all the newspapers, like Globe and Mail, like Sydney Post, like everything was like, how dare they didn't immediately stop and help save people. Yeah. Um, but that was against her operating procedures because it would have placed the minesweeper in danger of being sunk as well. Of course. Yeah. So you weren't supposed to do that. Supposed to chase off the submarine first. Right. So at the time, Caribou was carrying 46 crew members and 191, um, both civilian and military passengers. Um, 137 died, including many women and children, unfortunately. Um, so the this was kind of the moment that war really arrived in uh, Canada's home front in World War II. And it, her sinking is cited by many historians as the most significant sinking in Canadian control waters during the Second World War. Which I guess tells you that we didn't have such serious conflict yeah. here. But still, that's why I included that one. Okay, now the grand finale, which everyone has been waiting for. Yes. The Halifax explosion. Mm. Um, so, the relevant, back, relevant background information here is we're talking about Halifax, Nova Scotia. Yes. So I gotta tell you slightly about the geography and stuff if you don't, if you're not familiar with it. Um, I know I've mentioned Nova Scotia already several times this podcast. Nova Scotia is a province on the east coast of Canada, sitting on the Atlantic Ocean. Um, Halifax is the capital of Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. Halifax lies on the east coast of the province. So, you know, perhaps not surprisingly, we have a bustling harbor situation being right on the Atlantic like that. Yeah, and it's a great harbor, natural harbor, right? Um, yeah. Well, they, I mean, obviously they've built it up quite a bit. Oh, of course. Yeah. um, The Mi'kmaq name for Halifax is actually uh, Chibuktuk, which means Great Harbor. Perfect. So, yes, natural harbor. Yeah. Um, There was another town across the harbor called Dartmouth. Mm -hmm. Dartmouth is um, on the east shore of Halifax Harbor. Halifax is on the west shore. So there's kind of like the harbor is between them. Yep. Um, now Dartmouth, well, I said was, because now Dartmouth isn't a city any longer. It's a community of Halifax. Right. Just so you know. I actually didn't know that. I thought Dartmouth was its own city still, so. Hmm, okay. There you go. Um, by 1917-ish, Halifax's inner harbor was a principal assembly point for merchant convoys that were leaving for, like, Britain and France. Um, the population of the region was about 62,000 people, which was a recent expansion. Um... So Halifax and Dartmouth had thrived during wartime, definitely, for three main reasons. The harbor was one of the British Royal Navy's most important bases in North America. Um, It was a center for wartime trade, and it was also home to privateers working for the British Empire during the American Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars, and the War of 1812. Um, Quick question, do you know what a privateer does? 
No, actually. I learned it from this podcast because at first I was like, isn't that a pirate? <laughs> it's not a pirate. Um, it is people that, or, or the vessel itself, that have a contract from the government during wartime to carry munitions at attack or pester or rob enemies of said government. Um, so like a bounty hunter almost. Yeah. Compared, okay. I would say, bounty hunter. Yeah, because I had impressions of piracy as well, but this makes it's, sense. It's like licensed piracy. Yeah. As long as you do it against our war enemies, you can, you know, do whatever you want, basically. Okay. Um, so the harbor actually hadn't been doing that well economically um, before World War One. Really? The British Army had left their, pulled out of their base there and turned it over to the Canadian Navy. Um, and that really damaged the area economically. Yeah. Um, but just before World War One broke out, the Canadian government had maybe presciently put some really serious money into developing the harbor, the area around it, the facilities there, everything. So um, once again, wartime treated the harbor well. Um, it became the command center for not only the Royal Canadian Navy, but the Royal Navy, the British Royal Navy, readopted Halifax as the North American base of operations. Yeah. So by 1917, there was a large naval fleet in Halifax, like patrol ships, tugboats, minesweepers. Um, another thing to note is that all neutral ships bound for ports in North America were required to report to Halifax for inspection. Okay. So the success of German U-boat attacks, though, on ships across the Atlantic led the Allies to form this convoy system with their ships to reduce losses. Um, merchant ships would gather at Bedford Basin, which is an area on the northwest end of the harbor. Um, that uh, that area was protected by two sets of anti-submarine nets that were put up at night and taken down in the morning. Okay. And it was guarded by patrol ships from the Royal Canadian Navy. Yeah, totally makes sense. So there are two ships involved in this incident. The SS um, Emo. I don't know if it's IMO or Emo. IMO, what would you say? Emo? Imo? Imo, I think. Okay, I'm going to say Imo. Okay. But I can blame it on you if you're wrong. Perfect. Um, and the SS Mont Blanc. So, Imo is a Norwegian ship. They had sailed from the Netherlands, and they were going to New York to pick up relief supplies for Belgium. Okay. So, they arrived in Halifax on the 3rd December 1917 for that neutral inspection I told you about. Um, they spent two days in Bedford Basin waiting their refueling supplies, waiting for them. Um, so she was cleared to leave port on 5th of December, but she's delayed because her coal load didn't arrive until late in the afternoon. So by the time they were done loading it, the anti-submarine nets had been raised and they couldn't actually leave the port. So they had to wait. Yeah. So they had to wait. Then the French cargo ship SS Montblanc arrives from New York late on December 5th. This vessel is fully loaded with TNT and picric acid, which is a nitroamine explosive like TNT, but more powerful. Yep. Um, it was also carrying benzol, which is a highly flammable fuel, and gun cotton. Yep. Just <laughs> all good things for war. Um, so Mont Blanc was intending to join the, the convoy gathering in Bedford Basin. Um, but, you know, it was too late to enter the harbor. The nets were raised by the time they got there. Um, just as a note, before the war, ships carrying dangerous cargo, like this one, weren't allowed in the harbor at all. But they changed the rules because of the German submarines and just yeah. the risks involved. So they were all of a sudden allowed to go into the harbor. Um, so, the next morning. As you can imagine, we have two ships that feel late. 
Of course. And the 6th of December, 1917, is, is when the Halifax explosion occurs. I'm always granted clearance to leave Bedford Basin about 7.30 that morning. Um, and then navigating into or out of Bedford Basin requires going through a strait called the Narrows. I bet it's pretty narrow there. Wow, your insight. I know. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, so Ido enters the Narrows well above the harbor's speed limit to make up time. Ships are supposed to drive on the right in the Narrows and only pass port side to port side. Yeah, makes sense. But Imo was forced to the left because a few boats that were coming into the harbor were traveling on the wrong side or a little bit too much in the middle, and the excessive speeding didn't help either. Hmm. So she moved all the way over to the left. The Mont Blanc also started moving at 7.30 that morning, the opposite way. Uh, she was the second ship to enter the harbor, and she started heading towards Bedford Basin, which is on the Dartmouth side of the harbor. So she was on the correct side. She was on the right side. Um, the Mont Blanc first spotted Imo when they were about 1.21 kilometers apart. And they were concerned. It appeared like it was headed right for them. Um, so the Mont Blanc gave a short blast of their signal whistle to indicate they had the right of way. But she was met with two short blasts from Imo, meaning the approaching vessel was not going to yield its position. Hmm. So the captain orders Mont Blanc to stop the engines, angle slightly to starboard, so closer again to the Dartmouth side there. Then he lets out another signal blast of the whistle, hoping, you know, that Imo's going to move to starboard as well, but another double blast. So sailors on the nearby ships heard these signals and realized a collision was imminent and all gathered to watch. Because who doesn't like to see a good, you know, two ships balking into each other, you know? Mm -hmm. Both ships cut their engines, but the momentum, of course, still carried them forwards. Um, the ships were almost parallel to each other when Imo suddenly sent out three signal blasts, meaning that they were going to reverse their engines. This caused their ship's head to swing into Mont Blanc and push into the, like, starboard side. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't, you know, much of a collision. It happened at 8.45 a.m. The damage wasn't severe, but some barrels of the deck cargo fell down and broke open. So the deck was now flooded with benzol. Quickly, Highly flammable. Yeah, quickly flowed into the hold. And then, as Imo's engines did kick into gear again, she disengages, reverses away, which causes sparks. Like steel on steel type of sparks. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which ignited the benzol vapors. Fire starts. And, yeah, it is quickly becoming apparent the ship will explode. Well, the story is called the Halifax Explosion, so... So you're there saying may be some foreshadowing here. Coming. Yeah. yeah, the captain orders everyone to abandon ship. Um, but unfortunately, it was a spectacular fire. A spectacular sight to see. And so a large number of Halifax and Dartmouth citizens came to watch. Or just moved to their windows to watch. Just everyone was watching is what I'm trying to say. Um, the crew of the Mont Blanc shouted from their lifeboats that the ship was about to explode, but no one hurt them. Mm -hmm. um, the abandoned ship beached herself at Pier 6, which was near the foot of Richmond Street, if you know anything about the area of Halifax which I don't. 
Um, at 9.04 and 35 seconds, when the ship was, you know, surrounded by firefighting vessels and tugboats and all these other things trying to move it, it explodes. Um, it was completely blown apart. The blast wave radiated initially... It was going at more than a thousand meters per second. Temperatures were five thousand degrees Celsius. Pressures were in the thousands of atmospheres. Uh, so then, what you have next is white hard, white hot, not hard. Shards of iron are raining down on Everywhere. Halifax, Dartmouth. Um, large pieces of ship, like the anchor, even weighing half a ton, were were blown like four kilometers away. The cannon landed like three kilometers away. Um, some pieces were blown 300 meters up into the air. Yeah. So an area of over 1.6 square kilometers, so 400 acres, was completely leveled, destroyed. Um, the blast was actually felt over 200 kilometers away. Sure. Yeah. Wow. crazy. Um, but the explosion wasn't the end of it. So because of how powerful it was, the harbor floor was actually momentarily exposed. Wow, like the water was pushed aside so you could see the... The water was vaporized or pushed aside. Yeah. So that left a huge void. Mm-hmm, to be refilled. To be refilled, which, of course, water rushed in to do, forming a tsunami that rose 18 meters above the high watermark line in the harbor. So, you know, then a tsunami hit, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Incredible. So yeah. it's... Uh, impossible to know an exact death toll here. Um, over 1,600 people were instantly killed. Some estimates say 2,000 total deaths. Um, about 9,000 more were injured. Every building within a 2.6 kilometer radius, so 1.6 miles, uh, which is 12,000 buildings in total, was either badly damaged or completely destroyed. Over 33,000 people were left with insufficient shelter. So that's, you know, half the population. Mm -hmm. um, many people who had been watching that fire in their homes were blinded when the blast wave shattered the windows in front of them. So roughly 5,900 eye injuries were reported. Wow. 41 people lost their life permanently. Um, overturned stoves and lamps started more fires throughout the city of Halifax after that, particularly in the north end where entire city blocks burned down. Um, in total, the damages were estimated at $35 million Canadian. So that's about $627 million today. It's an incredible amount, yeah. Um, so, fun fact. This isn't a fun fact. This is kind of an interesting fact, I guess. Just fact, maybe. Uh, we'll, we'll find out. The mortuary, the government set up like a big emergency kind of mortuary situation in a community center kind of deal, um, was run by one Arthur S. Barnstead. And he used a cataloging system for the dead based on the one his father, John Henry Barnstead, had to develop when he dealt with the Titanic disaster in 1912. Oh. Spoilers again. Titanic and a disaster. I don't know why I talked about the Titanic so much. I said I wasn't going to talk about the Titanic. Yeah. Oh. Well, I don't want to forget about the minority populations as they did back then. Okay. So there were small and like enclaves of the Mi'kmaq... Um, tribe in and around the coves of Bedford Basin on the Dartmouth shores. Uh, directly opposite Pier 9 on the Halifax side was a community in Tufts Cove, which included the Mi'kmaq community of Turtle Grove 
and Turtle Grove was very close to the center of the blast, um, was just obliterated by the blast and the tsunami. So a precise Mi'kmaq death toll is unknown, though, because the Department of Indian Affairs and Department of Census, both their records for the community were bad. Incomplete, just bad. Uh, Survivors were then housed in racially segregated buildings under poor conditions and then eventually dispersed around Nova Scotia lovingly by our wonderful governments. Yeah. The black community of Africville, which was on the southern shores of Bedford Basin, was actually spared the direct force of the blast, but the homes were small, badly built, and frail, and definitely heavily damaged. The area was pretty much destroyed. Um, Families reported five resident deaths, but we have no idea. Um, A combination of, you know, good old-fashioned racism and and greed at people wanting to develop that area for the port um, meant that the people in Africville received no police or fire services afterwards. They... Didn't Well, this whole time they hadn't had access to water mains or sewer lines, despite the fact that they had to pay city taxes for their properties. Um, they received none of the donated relief funds and none of the reconstruction investment that other parts of the city saw. So, you know, racism. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to say there. Okay, let's play the who is responsible game. Hmm. Um, so many people in Halifax first thought that this explosion was a German attack. Of course. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The captain of the IMO was arrested on suspicions of being a German spy, but that was based on nothing, so soon he was released. A judicial inquiry, known as the REC Commissioner's Inquiry, uh, was formed 13th December 1917, and they made their official inquiry report the 4th of February 1918, and they blamed Mont Blanc's captain and pilot, um, as well as the officer in charge of the harbor and gates and anti-submarine things. Um, they said, quote, it was the Mont Blanc's responsibility alone to ensure that she avoided a collision at all costs, given her cargo. Um, I mean, the story I told makes me feel like they did, but whatever. Um, the Crown Council, though, at the time said this result was a great surprise to most people who expected the IMO to be blamed for being on completely the wrong side of the channel. That that does seem... going too fast. Like, if I was thinking about just a road. Yeah. (laughs) And a collision on a road where And someone one... just, like, went speeding into, like, headfirst into a tanker truck and it exploded. We'd be like, oh, a tanker truck. It is your responsibility not to get hit by these guys. I mean, that's how it feels from a land um, person's perspective. Right. And so, also at the time, people were not sure this judge knew what he was talking about. Um, they think the judge was likely influenced by local opinion, which was strongly anti-French. Okay. As well as by, uh, Imo apparently had a pretty good lawyer who was very persuasive. I guess that helps too, yeah. Yeah. So the, you know, captain, pilot, and the officer in charge of the harbor gates, those three, they were initially, the judge ordered them charged with manslaughter and criminal negligence. Um, but a Nova Scotia Supreme Court justice found there was no evidence to support those charges whatsoever. Civilly, both the Imo and the Mont Blanc were found equally to blame for the disaster. Really? So no one paid each other anything. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, aftermath of this explosion. Well, the Halifax explosion was one of the largest artificial explosions that had ever happened. Yeah, right. Up to this point, right? The largest, maybe. Up to this point. Um, it's so large that Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb, is 
you know, would go on to study the Halifax explosion to predict the effects of the atomic bomb. Um, so in October 1941, Oppenheimer attended the Uranium Committee, where they looked at Halifax, the explosion, and decided they wanted to put the energy packed into the Mont Blanc on a plane and drop it as a weapon. That's where that they started with the Halifax explosion as their model. Right. Um, in the summer of 1942, Oppenheimer was assigned to lead the Manhattan Project. Yep. They told him they wanted the mushroom cloud, or decided together maybe, they wanted the mushroom cloud to be ten times as high, the explosion to be ten times more powerful, and the devastation to be ten times that which was visited upon Halifax. That's how they thought of it. Um, in its eventual report on the atomic bombing of Hiroshima, Time magazine wrote... The explosive power of the little boy bomb was seven times that of the Halifax explosion. Okay. Yeah. On a slightly brighter note, the many eye injuries actually led to a better understanding of how to care for damaged eyes, and then Halifax would soon form the Canadian National Institute for the Blind and become known internationally as a center for care for the blind. That part's good, yeah. Um, The lack of coordinated pediatric care was noted at the time by William Ladd, who was a a surgeon from Boston who arrived to help. And it's credited that his insights from this explosion are what inspired him to pioneer the specialty of pediatric surgery in North America. Cool. So, um, yeah, necessary medical advancements came from this, but overall it was pretty devastating. Just erased a whole area on the map like that. Um, but I have kept you long enough talking about ships and such. Kind of kind of went on and on, but I found it pretty interesting. And That's like good. I said, there are hundreds more. Of course. Lots of ships sink. There's interesting stories all over the place. I did not get them all. Um, next time, we're going to talk about a Russian scientist I have just learned about back from the Soviet area. It's going to be very interesting, I think. Okay. Um, So I want to say thank you once again to everybody for listening to this episode of Teach Me Something. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new. 